Well, let's do it, guys. Anybody, anybody in a candy coma this morning? You guys okay? You guys awake? All right. Um, Luke 1, verses 13 to 17. And I realize some of you might be deeply concerned at this point that, you know, I'm going to die before we get through Luke. I'm not, I'm not always going to go this slow. Uh, I think Pearl, <laughs> Megan told me that Pearl got back from their three-week vacations like, he's only done three verses? <laughs> I'm not going to take this long for, uh, but, uh, for every, every verse here, every um, section of, of Luke's gospel. But in the beginning here, so much is being brought in that I think it's worthy of, of our time. So uh, Luke 1. 13 through 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 1, verse 13, down to verse 17. Let's read it, guys, and I'll pray. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's pray, guys. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Just like Ian was sharing with us, God, to begin our service here this morning. Sin just increased and increased and is worthy of not abounding grace, but abounding wrath. But we are here because you interposed the Son between us and your wrath. And the wrath as it was channeled through Him was transvalued into grace for us. You poured it out. You didn't hold it back. And that great torrent of wrath that fell upon Christ through Him now is a great torrent of grace for us here this morning. Jesus, thank You. We would stand no chance without You. We wouldn't be here, Lord, without You. You have relentlessly pursued us. And there are some in this room, God, who maybe You're still pursuing Don't give up, God, until you've made them your own. Thank you, Jesus, that your word 
gives testimony to the great pursuit of your grace for your people. Thank you that our sin is no obstacle you can't overcome. Lord, I'm praying today as I was reading in Psalm 119 that, that that would be fulfilled, that as we as we open up your word, light would come forth. The opening of your word gives light. We pray, Jesus, we're getting in your words here this morning and we ask, would you bring light? Would you give light? Would you help us to see the glory of God in your face and be more and more transformed into that image? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, as every other week, I have a lot for us, so I'm going to jump right in. Um, what I wanted to begin with here this morning, I, I imagine there's a question uh, that might be arising in some of your minds, and that is, why another week on John? Why? And this isn't even going to be the last week on John, but why another week on John the Baptist? If, if John the Baptist's whole ministry was to point to Christ, right? His whole, his whole, the whole mission of his life was, behold him, go to him. Why, Nick? Another week on John. The Christ has come. Let's go to the Christ. It's a worthwhile question. And as I was thinking about it, I, I guess the, the simple answer in, in my mind is this. While the redemptive program of God has now advanced beyond John's historical moment. So yes, we're looking to Christ. The Christ has come. John's Christological mission in many ways lives on. Do you remember um, the fundamental message of John the Baptist, if you will? What, what, was, what was his mission and his message? What was it all about? Remember what he first is recorded as saying in like Matthew's Gospel, he's coming out. What's the voice crying in the wilderness? Remember? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And I thought, you know, is there anyone in this room to whom that's still relevant? His message is one of repentance. Repent. And receive the King of Kings, receive the Son and His His sacrifice for sin. And so we say, okay, 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 that that seems relevant. John the Baptist's message, his mission, does still seem relevant to some degree. For maybe there's some of us in this room who haven't yet received Jesus, and so they need to. But most of us have. To which I respond, so. All Hallows Eve. I thought I'd bring in Reformation Day or Halloween, whichever one you prefer to celebrate. I kind of like Reformation Day. But All Hallows' Eve, nearly 500 years ago, 1517, Martin Luther is utterly sickened, right, by what he sees going on in the Roman Catholic Church with the the, the abuse of papal power and the, the, the sale of indulgences and penance and purgatory and the corruption of the gospel, all these various things finally decides I got to do something about this. I got I got I want to spark a debate. I want to start talking. I want to start reformation in the church. 
So he writes a document, brings that document to the the castle church door in Wittenberg where he was at and nails what is now called the 95 Theses to the door of that church. I wonder if you know what the first Theses was, what his first charge was, how he begins this document. I'll read it to you. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent. He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. In other words, repentance not only marks the beginning of the Christian life, but is a day-in, day-out dynamic that composes the ongoing essence of the Christian life. Repentance is not only relevant at the beginning, it is relevant every day afterwards because I don't know about you, but I am not where I ought to be. I need more of Jesus. I need to turn more deeply from sin and behold more fully the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. So repentance and the message, the Christological mission, if you will, of John the Baptist is still relevant almost in many ways just as much today as it has always been. Repent, turn from sin, receive the Christ who can finally and fully deal with it. So we're not wasting our time. That was just a defense of why another week on John the Baptist. We need to repent. It's a lifestyle of repentance and receiving the Lamb and holding on to Him. Now, in our text, Gabriel announces to Zechariah that he will have a son. The son's name is given at the end of verse 13, John. And then John's person and work are described in the verses that follow. And we we largely looked at this last week, but you see how this son is going to bring joy, right? to Zechariah and to many. And for this reason, he's going to be great. And he's going to be great in that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is he going to do when he's filled with the Holy Spirit? He's going to turn the children of Israel back to the Lord, their God, in whose presence is fullness of joy. But now, in verse 16, um, where we see the ministry of turning, right? Uh, As we follow that to verse 17, this ministry of turning is fleshed out more fully. And verse 17 is going to be the verse of our focus here this morning, so I want to read it one more time for us. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in this verse, there is one dominant verb in the Greek, okay? And it's it's this, go before. He will go before him. I just want to trace the logic here real quick and set us up for the rest of this sermon. John is going to go before the Lord. And then we are told uh, in the rest of the verse what he's going to go before the Lord to do and how he's going to do it. Okay? So when we look at the what, what is he going before to do? We see these purpose statements. I'm going to teach you how to look at at the Scriptures and, 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 and get what's there. Glean it. Glean what's in there. Follow the logic. 
So he's going before to do what? What are the purpose statements I'm referring to? You see this first. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So he's going before to turn, right? The hearts of fathers to the children. And you kind of carry over that turning into the next part of that verse where it says um, to turn, you could say, the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So John's going to come and he's going to turn. And this really connects with what I was just saying about his message ultimately being one of repentance, right? To turn. He's going to turn something here. And then we're given a second purpose statement at the end of this verse. He's going to go before not only to turn, but also to make ready. You see that there? To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To turn and to make ready. That's why he's going before the Lord. But how is he going to do it? How is he going to do it? In what way is he going to go before the Lord and turn and make ready? And that's what we're given right out of the gate. Read this. He will go before him. How? In the spirit and power of Elisha. So Elijah has something to do with this. He's going to look kind of like Elijah did. There's going to be an Elijah-like quality in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's how he's going to go before the Lord. And so we have to ask ourselves, who's Elijah? Who is this Elijah? And I'm glad you asked because that's, in essence, this week's message. What does Elijah have to do with John, and how does that help us understand John's ministry of going before the Christ? Okay? That's where we're going to go this morning, um, and it will take us out of this, uh, this, this section we've been in there in verses 13 to 17. And next week we will, Lord willing, move on. But I want to follow Elijah through three distinct layers of biblical sediment, if you will. Um, I see what I'm doing is kind of expository excavation. Okay, we dig into the different layers that are beneath our text. And each layer as we go will give more meaning and help us to see how we not only should interpret, but apply this text. We're going to start with Elijah in historical memory. You probably see this on your handout. And then we're going to move to Elijah in prophetic hope. That's Malachi. And then finally end up with Elijah in Johannine ministry, or in John's ministry, which we'll see in Luke and in the Gospels. So first thing, Elijah in historical memory. And we're going to go to the book of Kings for this. Um, the reference to Elijah in Luke is a clear allusion, and almost at, at points even a, a direct quotation of, of the text in Malachi, okay, that we're going to look at after this first point. Um, But the text in Malachi was written many years after Elijah um, was was dead. And so if we're to get the the full brunt of what Malachi means when he talks about Elijah, we have to go back even further and get who was Elijah in the first place in Israel's memory? Who was he in their history? And then we'll start to fill things out as we interpret uh, further. Okay, so Elijah in historical memory is our starting point. Who was he and what does he have to do with John? I'm going to give a brief historical account here and draw some connections for us, all right? 
forward to John. First, I want to consider um, the mere description of Elijah. Because immediately, even just in the way they're described, links are being forged uh, by the biblical authors in our minds. Elijah in Second uh, Kings 1.8 is described in this way. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Anybody want to follow his fashion trend? I don't think so. It sounds uncomfortable and a little bit odd. Um, but he's got a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Second Kings 1.8. And then Matthew 3.4. We read this about John the Baptist. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair. And a leather belt around his waist. You think, no, Matthew, what? we're not reading a cosmopolitan magazine here. We don't care about their style. Why is Matthew recording John's style? He's trying to say, Elijah here. This is a connection to Elijah in this man. Okay? First, we see the connection in just merely the description of these men. Second, and, and more. Um, more poignantly, we see uh, parallels in their mission. Okay? The mission of Elijah, I want to think about this for a moment. Helpful, helpful mnemonic at this point um, is simply to note that his name summarizes his mission and legacy. Okay? His name in the Hebrew, Elijah, my God, is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. His name summarizes his mission and his legacy, what he will be known for through the, through the years to come. Because he would be the great champion of, of monotheism, if you will. He, his, his mission would be to go before the people, of, uh, go before God, if you will, and turn the people away from their idolatries back to the true, the one and only true God, Yahweh. So my God is Yahweh. He's trying to bring others into that same confession. Right? He's going to turn people to the one true God. And as the particulars of his mission unfold, we begin to see the parallels between him and John. Both are called to be prophets of the Lord, right? Both begin their ministries in the wilderness. I'm going to fly over this. I mean, I've read the entire... Kings and Second Kings stuff, uh, just to try to make sure. Okay, am I? Is this all right? So I'm gonna have to fly over. I, I encourage you take a take a look at it yourselves. Uh, and I apologize for going quicker here, but this is not the main point. I just want to give us a sense of who Elijah was, and how he connects with John. So both begin their ministries in the wilderness. Both Elijah and John faced hostile political power. Do you remember this? Um, Elijah's facing this kind of apostate king uh, in Israel, King Ahab, right? And then who's John dealing with in the Gospels? But King Herod the Edomite, right? So there's this, there's this political conflict in both of their ministries. And even more refined there, within the political conflict, there's this struggle between the, the, the kings and their wives, the wives are kind of the, the biggest uh, antagonists, if you will, in, in the lives of these men. If you recall, uh, for Elijah, it was Jezebel, the Phoenician, the foreign wife of Ahab, who introduced uh, the worship of Baal into Israel. So you have, um, you have Jezebel for, for, for Elijah. And I want, to, I want to read you something that she said here, because after Elijah had, had, had actually slaughtered, which is pretty brutal, the prophets of her, of her false god, Baal, 
Um, she threatens him in the same way. Look at this. She says, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life, Elijah, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel is the main antagonist coming against Elijah. That's why you probably won't meet very many ladies named Jezebel. <laughs> even though it's a lovely name, it's too bad. <laughs> I even looked on babynames.com, I'm like, is that even there? No, not even there. <laughs> but against John who was it so sure Herod yes but his wife an unlawful wife named Herodias who was I guess at one point the wife of his brother Philip and John speaks out against it and so what does Herodias do she wants him dead same kind of thing give me his head on a platter that's what I want husband that's how he dies so you're starting to see these Interesting parallels between their two ministries. But beyond all the conflict with hostile political power, uh, kings and their wives was an even greater conflict between false gods and the one true God. Okay, there's this story, probably the most well-known, probably the climactic moment of Elijah's life and ministry, 1 Kings 18. It might be good to turn there if you want. Um, if you're familiar uh, looking through your, your scripture there, it's going to come up after Samuel and then Kings. Oh, in our, if, you have a, if you have a Bible that the church gives you, page 300. Otherwise, I don't know what three, page 300 will be. <laughs> but there's this scene in the ministry of Elijah. Um, and I, where he is going to do combat with the prophets, with the false prophets of a false god, Baal, right? So like, like I've said, um, Jezebel introduced kind of formally the, the worship of Baal. I call him Baal because of the Hebrew, but we'll just call him Baal, I, whatever you want. People pronounce it different ways. It sounds awkward the way I'm saying it, so I'm going to change it. Uh, people, uh, so the false worship of, of, of Baal. He's this storm god, right? Um, and so he's supposed to be able to make it rain, okay? And, and um, what the real God does, Yahweh, to try to get the, the hearts of Israel back to him, is he says, okay, I'm going to shut up the heavens. I'm going to shut up the heavens. Three and a half years there in drought. If, if Baal is the real God, why can't he do anything about this? I want to get the people back to me and I'm going to use Elijah to do this. And so here's this kind of paradigmatic moment that I think even informs the Malachi's use and, and, and John the Baptist, Luke's use, Gabriel's use of him later. I want, to, I want to focus in on this scene because God's going to take his one true prophet and he's going to do combat with hundreds of the false prophets on Mount, Car- on Mount Carmel. All right? And we're going to see who the real God is is this is what happens the word of the lord comes to elijah verse one saying go show yourself to ahab and i'm going to send rain on the earth here's how we're going to do it i want you to get all israel together i want you to go to mount carmel we're going to do we're going to do a competition if you will we're going to set up an altar i'm going to give two bulls one for the prophets of baal one for you and then we're going to get the, the offerings ready, and, but we're not going to light the fire. 
We're going to cry out. Let both prophets, let, all, let both sides cry out to their God. And the God who comes and consumes the offering with fire is the one who is the, who is the true God. Okay? And so this is, this is how we're set up. We're going to Mount Carmel with Elijah. All of Israel is falling behind. Ahab's there. The prophets are there. And they're all against this one man. The prophets of Baal are going to go first. So they get things ready. They put their offering on the altar. And then we read how they call and they limp and they rave from morning to afternoon. They're just going on and on and on to the point where they even start cutting themselves. Okay? Trying to get their God to move. And then you read this. Verse 29. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Nothing. Morning to late afternoon, nothing. And then it's Elijah and Yahweh's turn to move. Elijah gets the bull ready, even dumps water all over it, if you recall, to make it even more dramatic, more improbable that the fire could in fact consume it. Let's dump water all over this thing. And then, this is the key, this is why I'm here. We read this. This is verse 36. We're going to read down to verse 39. At the time of the offering of the oblation, which is actually the time of the evening sacrifice, the time of the evening burnt offering. Interesting note, seeing what we've seen in Luke up to this point. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Now hear this, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. So the time of the evening sacrifice, the goal of the whole combat was to turn their hearts back so that my God is Yahweh, Elijah would become our God is Yahweh. That's the point of Elijah's life. And we see this kind of climactically displayed on Mount Carmel. And then you read this amazing verse at the end of that. Verse 45, a little cloud emerged on the horizon and there was a great Baal, the storm god, nothing. Yahweh, the one true God, there was a great rain. The drought ended. And now we might ask, was John, um, what was John's ministry? I'm saying there's a parallel in their ultimate conflict, not with political power, but with, 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 with the false gods and the one true God, with What's John doing in his ministry? Well, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Gabriel appears to Zechariah to announce his coming son and describe his mission. And we read it, I want to read it again in verse 16 to 17. He will turn, 
he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, my hope is that now all of a sudden that verse has a little bit more color. Because where Elijah was turning the hearts of the people of Israel to the one true God, this is what's going to happen with John. There's one more thing. Uh, worthy of of noting uh, in Elijah's ministry and John's and the connection between them. Um, Succession. We've seen the description. We've seen the mission. I want to see succession. Because if John is said to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? Did Elijah go before anybody? If John's going before the Christ, who did Elijah go before? He went before Elisha. I'm going to fly through this, but it's actually very, very intriguing. Elijah... Before his time of departure, you remember this? He, he like, he's the one who goes up in chariots, in chariots of fire, right, up to heaven. God takes him. He doesn't die. He actually just ascends, which is probably why there's a lot of these more apocalyptic uh, expectations for him when we get to Israel. He didn't die. He's coming back. Who is he? They're all looking around for him. But at, at the time of his departure, Elijah takes Elisha to the Jordan River which seems to serve as the anointing God called for back in 1 Kings 19.16. God says, you're going to anoint Elisha to succeed you. So he takes him to the Jordan River. My guess is that's probably where his anointing took place. Then he goes out into the wilderness with him. And as Elijah's being taken up, what do we read? But that Elisha gets a double portion of Elijah's spirit. A double portion. What Elijah had, I want more of it. And then Elisha goes out to to accomplish, to complete all that Elijah began. Elijah's ministry was incomplete at the end of his life. He had prophesied things that had not yet come to pass. And Elisha takes that mantle or the cloak or whatever and he goes with it. And he puts to death the whole house of Ahab. Brings an end to it. And uh, Baal worship as well in Israel. Puts an end to that completes the mission of Elijah. That's what Elisha does. And then we see now, in the transition between um, the two, Elijah to Elisha, a foreshadowing of the movement from John to Jesus. A foreshadowing of the movement from John to Jesus. Because what does John do? John takes Jesus to the Jordan River, where he anoints him as king and essentially as his successor saying, listen, he must increase, I must decrease and he starts to fade away into the behind the scenes and what happens in that baptism but the spirit falls upon him, rests upon Christ in an unprecedented way where Jesus goes forward and completes all that John the Baptist stood for in terms of doing away with all sin and finally fully bringing people back to God. Just something to think about. I know you're saying, what does that have to do with my life? Uh, a lot, actually, but we'll get there. <laughs> so, Elijah and John, as we look at the historical memory of Elijah, what they would have known of his story, we see the parallels in description, mission, and now succession. But what I want to do here, we're going to move on to Elijah in prophetic hope, Malachi. With the historical Elijah now fresh in our minds, I think we can see Malachi in all of its fullness. Malachi was the last prophet and the last book 
in the Old Testament. So if you're looking for the book of Malachi, just go to Matthew and turn right before it. It's Malachi, last prophet, last book in the Old Testament. And it's at this point that we start to tread on the fringes of our text in Luke. For as I already mentioned, Gabriel is largely referencing Malachi as he's describing what John's ministry is going to be like. So we're starting to get closer to um, Luke and John. Now Malachi was a post-exilic prophet. And that's a really big deal. Because what that means is that the exile has happened. Which means the return that we saw in 1 Kings 18 that was brought in by Elijah and then later by Elisha in a more complete way was in fact only temporary. That Israel's heart weren't fully changed. The heart of the issue was not actually dealt with. In fact, it's interesting, the whole history of Israel, it seems to me, bears a striking resemblance to lawn care. Okay? If you have weeds, right, in your lawn, I mean, I, we have a gardener. It came with our rent, so I, I don't know much about this. But from what I understand, if you just mow over the weeds, they're just going to grow back and they're going to continue to seed and spread. The whole history of Israel is kind of like that, okay? You, you, you're, seeing, you're seeing prophets come mowing over the idol worship, if you will. So Elijah and Elisha mowing over the worship of Baal and these other false gods. But then other false gods just crop up in their place. And just the hearts of Israel continually turning. And this is just a parable for our own lives and our own hearts. Constantly turning. And God might take that idol from us, but we're so prone to then go, well, maybe that one, maybe that one, maybe there. And so we see the whole story of Israel just kind of like this. Just weeds cropping up. And that's what took place uh, after Elijah and Elisha to such a degree that they get expelled from the Holy Land and go off into exile. God pursued, 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 but they rejected Him at every point, so they're in exile. And guess what? God still pursues Him there, or pursues them there. He just keeps going. He doesn't give up. Our God is relentless in His grace. He pursues them in exile, brings them back. They rebuild the temple. But by Malachi's day, delusion has, or I'm sorry, disillusion has already set in. They're going, wait a minute. We still got enemies. We're still in this tiny little plot of land. We're wondering, we, we still got economic problems. We still got famine. All the things that the, that the prophets were talking about, where is this? Worst of all, what we see in Malachi, worst of all, the heart still had not been dealt with. The roots, the depths of this problem had still not been dealt with. Malachi's book is largely a book of rebuke. His oracles, his prophecies are largely uh, uh, charges against Israel for their continued sin. Even though they're back in the land after exile, they're still doing the very same things they were, they, they were doing before that got them sent into exile. But this book, largely full of rebuke, holds out one massive promise in its last verses. I want you to read this. Malachi 4, 5-6. through 
This is what stands behind our text in Luke. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Sound familiar? And the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Though we are still dealing with the same issues, my people, I will not give up on you. Behold, I will send you Elijah and he will turn you back ultimately to me. And you want to know what's amazing? The Old Testament just ends there. Just ends there. I will send you Elijah. He's going to turn you. Drop the curtain. This promise just ringing in the ears, just left hanging in the air. For 400 years, a little more, until Gabriel takes its words upon his lips to describe the ministry of John. I'm going to read it again. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, verse 17 to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I'm hoping as we're going, I'm gathering more steam and you're seeing all that's in this announcement by Gabriel to Zechariah regarding John. It is no coincidence then that the last promise of the Old Testament, the very last words of the Old Testament, are the, is the very first promise picked up in Luke's Gospel by Gabriel explicitly. I mean, if you are ever concerned, how do we know the New Testament connects with the Old? And I mean, for this many years, it just kind of it didn't, ex- it, you know, it didn't exist. And there were all these other books in between, the Apocrypha and stuff like that. And how do we know they just picked it back up? This is how. Gabriel saying, God is on the move again and He is going to bring His children home fully this time. Here is Elijah. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. His ministry is going to look like Elijah here. And He's going to turn you back to me. Broken things are coming back together in this verse. Verse 17. I started reading verse 17 over and over and and there's a little bit of confusion in terms of what exactly is going on. What exactly does it mean? But I think you can sum it all up. What, What the first Elijah was aiming for and now what John the Baptist is going towards, you can sum up this whole thing with a single word, I think. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. If you look at verse 17, there are broken things coming back together. The picture is of fathers turning towards children. Broken families coming together. The disobedient are turning towards the righteous. 
And all of this is pointing towards the most glorious mending of all, I think. A sinful people being turned towards and reconciled with their God. You're being prepared for Him. Reconciliation is the goal. All that Elijah labored for, now John. Reconciliation. It seems to me the whole history from Elijah to John emphasizes one preeminent point. Though you persist in sin, I will yet persist in grace. That's why I opened my prayer the way I did, where sin increased after year and year, generation and generation, increase, 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 where sin increased. I gave up on you? No! Grace got higher. Grace abounded. It's kind of like this picture of, I don't know, we're, we're, we're building our babbles here, right? We're coming against God and building them up. And the higher we build in our sinful rebellion, the greater the tidal wave of His grace gets. And the higher, the more, the more ominous in the best kind of way. And just, crashes those things, covers those things, and brings us back to Him. That, I think, is the point of John, the point of Elijah. Reconciliation. (laughs) I'm not giving up on you. Get back to me. I know I opened saying John's message is one of repentance, and that is true, but it's repentance with a goal. Don't just stop at turn from sin. It ends with turn towards the king. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It ends, its end goal is reconciliation. To bring broken things back together. To bring broken people back to God. So if Elijah stands for anything at all, as we read about John coming like Elijah, I think it's this. The persistent love of Yahweh (laughs) for a sinful and rebellious people and His relentless pursuit of reconciliation with them. Reconciliation. Not going to give up. It's like, why do what Elijah already did if it didn't work? Because I'm not giving up. Why send Elijah again if they just turned? Because I'm not giving up. Reconciliation. So this ministry of reconciliation reaches its final phase in the person and work of the new Elijah, John the Baptist. But how is God going to do it? How is He going to reconcile us fully, finally, to God? To answer this, I I want to move forward to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's going to be the last text we look at. There's another layer of sediment that's added to to what we've uh, read here in Luke 1.17 comes later. At the Mount of Transfiguration. The scene, um, I wonder if you're aware, we'll, we'll look at this later uh, in, when we get there in Luke's Gospel, but the Transfiguration scene actually forges another important link with Malachi's last oracle. Because the last three verses discuss Moses and Elijah in Malachi. That's Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Moses and Elijah show up there. And who shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? But Moses and Elijah. 
They're both saying, look to Jesus, look to Him. So there's, there's, there's critical stuff going on that connects us to Luke one seventeen and Malachi. But while the, while the Mount of Transfiguration scene is recorded for us in Luke, there's a conversation that takes place as they're descending from that place of glory between uh, the three disciples, James, John, Peter, and Jesus, that's not recorded in Luke, but it is in Matthew and Mark, and I want to go there. It's Matthew 17, 9 through 13. This conversation is, is important for our purposes here because it not only shows the moment when the disciples, I think, finally understood that John was the Elijah that they had expected or that they'd been anticipating, and it also shows John's connection to the Christ and how they're finally going to reconcile and restore all things. So let's read Matthew 17, 9 through 13. They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Just saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus. They're talking about it. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, there's some ambiguity about what's going on here. It seems to me this is one probable. Uh, but why does Elijah come in? What are they talking about? Jesus mentions the, his resurrection, okay? First, in the first verse we looked at there, verse um, 9. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Okay. At this point, that kind of elicits this question about Elijah in the disciples' minds. So it seems that this discussion of the resurrection is making them think about the end and maybe the great restoration of things to come and the great resurrection that would take place like Daniel 12, 2 talks about. And so they're saying, wait a minute. If that's going on right now, if, if we're close to the great resurrection of the dead and the restoration of all things... I thought Elijah was supposed to come in a more significant way and and turn all the hearts of Israel back and and, and mend the families, all these things, restore the tribes of Israel. Was what we just saw on the Mount of Transfiguration it? Is that it? So there's confusion. There's confusion about where was John? Where's Elijah? Where is he if we're near the end here? That's how I'm reading it. People read it different ways. But what was Jesus' response to all this? He validates the scribal interpretation. He says, Elijah does come. You're right. He does come. And he's going to restore all things. But then this validation quickly turns to reproach as you keep reading. I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Oh, he came. And he's a part of the restoration process. But they did not get it. Instead, they lopped off his head and brought it to a bloodthirsty adulteress. She could laugh and scoff. That's what happened to Elijah. 
the one prophesied in Malachi. A little bit different than how it looked for the Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Victory. This looks like wasting away in prison and then dying for the cause. Yes, the scribes were right in their expectation of Elijah. You're right. He will come before the restoration at the end. But they missed the supremely important fact that he's already come. The plan is advancing only in a way that even the most learned in Israel would not only miss, but reject. This wouldn't be the one. This couldn't be the one. Not this way. John the Baptist is not the Elijah they expected, and Jesus was not going to be the Christ they expected. Not the Christ they wanted. Right? They're ready to make him king when he's healing and doing miracles. Remember that in John's Gospel? Let's make him a king! He's doing awesome stuff! Jesus runs away from that. That's not his type of kingdom. He's not looking to do that. He's got something deeper in mind. There's another way he's going to get at this restoration of all things and it requires dealing with the heart of the problem. But you remember, even John was struggling to get it. And that's the crazy thing. Even John was struggling to get how Jesus would be the Christ. Even John was saying, are you the Christ I expected? John's in prison and he sends messengers. Do you remember this in Luke 7, verse 20? He sends these messengers and they ask Jesus this. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John is is, is in prison at this point and he's saying, Where's the man of fire I was talking about back in Luke 3? The one who's going to baptize in fire and bring in the, the, the end of the, of the age and, the, and the, the great and awesome day of the Lord. I'm dying in prison here! Did I miss something? But how does Jesus respond? Luke 7, 22 and 23. Go and tell John... Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I never noticed this before, but one scholar, one scholar points out, These miracles he lists are largely the miracles of Elisha in the Elisha narrative in 2 Kings. It's a conflation of the the servant from Isaiah 61 with Elisha's miracles. It's as if Jesus is telling John, I'm the Elisha to your Elijah. And as Elijah was taken away before he saw the fulfillment of all he was aiming for, so too you're going to go, but I will bring to completion all that we are after. Reconciliation between God and a sinful people. Don't you worry. It's going to happen, John. Even if it happens in a way you didn't expect. As they did not recognize you, but did to you whatever they pleased, John. So also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. You're going to be bound. You're going to be struck. 
You're going to be spit upon. He's going to be crucified. The one who truly came to restore all things and bring in that reconciliation would himself have to be destroyed. And this is the wonder of the gospel. It is his very destruction that becomes the means of his restoration. Don't miss that. If he is truly going to turn the hearts of fathers to sons and children to fathers, his own father would have to turn against him. If he truly is going to turn the disobedient, the unrighteous, to the wisdom of the just or the righteous, he would have to take our disobedience upon himself. Be treated as the fool, as the sinner. And suffer the wrath of God in our place. He is going after the roots here. We're not just mowing anymore. We are taking out hearts of stone and putting in hearts of flesh. We are bringing people back to God fully and finally forever. Colossians 1, 21, 22. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that's you, that's me, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him reconciliation because he was utterly cut off. Isn't that amazing? Relentless pursuit of our gracious God. Sin increased. Can't stop his grace. All that Elijah and John were laboring for would be finally realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A sinful people can now be fully and finally reconciled to a holy God. Close with a couple brief questions. Application. Are you reconciled? Some of us in this room probably are still enamored with the idols of this world with all their false prophets and all the false promises. And I'll pray it doesn't take too long for you to realize what the prophets of Baal did. When the drought comes, when the famine strikes, the only God who truly hears and truly answers, who will truly be there for you, is Yahweh. There is nothing holding you back from reconciliation with Yahweh because of what Jesus has done. Arms are open wide. Come back to Him. You're not going to find it in your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your your, your relationship or your job or your money or your health or your good looks. It's going to let you down. It's going to let you down when you need it the most. Turn and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, right?
There are others of us who say, I want to turn, I want to be reconciled, but I'm not worthy of it. Oh, I get why the Reformation began with a call to repentance. I see my sin every day. The same stuff again and again and again. And I'm thinking, can you seriously come and receive forgiveness for the same thing? Yes, Jesus said, seven times, 77 times. Just meaning forever. If you repent, it's over. Reconciliation right now. The call for repentance that began the Reformation led to the doctrine that's come in many ways to define it. Justification by faith alone. You know what that means? It's all about His work. His work. We receive His work. His work on the cross. We receive that and we are received by God. Righteous in His sight. The text I read, holy and blameless. You are evil. Jesus died holy and blameless in my sight. We don't sell indulgences at this church. We don't do penance. We don't anticipate centuries of, the, of, of suffering in the flames of purgatory. I read this last night about it. You anticipate centuries, depending on how bad you were, even as a Christian. It's not the gospel. Justification by faith alone says, you know what? I don't care how far, how many miles you have traveled away from God in your sin, it is one step back. I mean, think about this. All the prodigal had to do was turn, and the father's running. Is that right? Is that how you see the Father? You're trying to pay Him back. You're coming in on your knees and lashing your back. Maybe then. Reconciliation. That's what Elijah and John the Baptist and ultimately Jesus teach us. Finally, are you reconciling? Are you reconciled? Are you reconciling? If this is our God... And we are His children. What kind of people are we to be? We have His Spirit, you guys. Do you have one of those those balance sheets that I know all too well in my own heart? Where it's like, okay, they did this to me, they did that to me. Yeah, that's too much. I'm cutting them off. As long as there's give and take, as long as there's some kind of equality in 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 our ledger, both sides of the ledger, all right, we're good. But if you start to take and take and take and hurt me, it's over. It's over. You want to know what God says? You want to know what Jesus says to do with that ledger? Burn it. Let grace flow through you even to your enemies. We're not meant to be cul-de-sacs of His grace, but conduits of it, couriers of it to others. That's the way we were designed to live, not just reconciled to a holy God, but reconciling to one another. So I don't care what verse 17 really means in terms of is it, is it literal families or God? or what? It's everything reconciled. 
Are you selling indulgences? Are you putting people in purgatory, making them pay penance? Hey, when you've paid back your debt, you can be right with me again. Don't do that. He didn't uh, die for us so that we could bicker and begrudge. It's hard. Believe me, I know that. I don't know the intricacies of your stories and the people in your life and what they've done. I know it's hard. Well, that's why we look to Christ, the one whose spirit is in us, greater than the spirit is in the world. He can help us with this. He died so that we would be reconciled to Him and reconciling with one another. Let's pray. God, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Your pursuit of us through the ages. The whole story could have could have ended with Adam and Eve. You're a glorious and gracious God. And we can't believe we're, we're, we're counted among the number. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for sending Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It would not have gone well for us without Jesus. Thank you. God, we see your beauty preeminently displayed for us at the cross. We're a crazy people when we really think about it, rejoicing in the death, the brutal death of another. But God, what you have enabled us to see in that event, in your work there, makes it the most beautiful event not only in in world history but in in all of eternity we will be singing about your grace and your glory displayed for us there because it is there that you finally and fully reconciled sinful people to yourself thank you Jesus for reconciliation In the vertical dimension, help us, God, with the ministry of reconciliation in the horizontal. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.